Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Most people don't realize that cannabis is serious business that requires serious technology solutions. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group. We are seriously proud to provide technology and security systems that help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, I'm here to tell you that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis. sunstatetech.com cannabis. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm happy you could join us. When Congress passed the 21st Amendment to repeal federal prohibition of alcohol, a number of states opted to maintain statewide temperance laws until 1966. Mississippi was the last dry state to finally end prohibition, and even then, states had the authority to enact their own rules. For example, they could limit the sale of alcohol on Sundays or after 2 a.m. every other day, and some limited the age to legally purchase alcohol to 18 years of age, others 21 years of age. Some states have allowed counties and municipalities to set their own local laws, and to this day there are dozens of dry counties where you'd be hard-pressed to find any alcohol at all. Ending the prohibition of alcohol actually required ratification by 36 states, which means three quarters of the states had to agree to it in order for it to become a constitutional amendment. Today, we have 33 states plus Washington, D.C. that have legalized cannabis for medical or adult use. So it's getting really close to the point in our history when we might see an end of prohibition in the very near future. And when that happens, we'll likely see a similar scenario play out with states adopting their own rules and local municipalities adopting ordinances within their own jurisdictions. As more and more states adopt cannabis legalization measures, industry stakeholders and consumers alike are grappling with the fact that not every municipality is on board. Some state measures allow local governments to establish their own ordinances having to do with zoning, permits, licenses, and hours of operation, while some states require municipalities to get voter approval for local ordinances that stray too far from state rules. Others are just simply at the mercy of local city council or county commissioners. But either way, discrepancies in the law wind up being settled in court. Such was the case in Charlton, Massachusetts, where the local land court ruled in favor of an agricultural landowner who had been barred by the local town council from converting his farm into a million-square-foot cultivation facility. In a state that's still in the process of closing legislative loopholes in its adult-use measure, and where local lawmakers have yet to learn the many ways in which cannabis can help make a positive impact in their communities, The land court decision was actually a big win for the industry. That's the topic of today's show, and our guest is here to help us understand just how that decision will impact Massachusetts and other states that are in the process of legalizing cannabis. Robert Minnelli is an attorney with the Boston law firm Davis Malm. He specializes in regulatory law pertaining to communications, technology, and cannabis. As co-chairman of his firm's cannabis practice group, he's been actively involved in helping to solve some of the industry's regulatory challenges and shaping the state's pending legislative measures having to do with the adult use policy revisions. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so happy you could be here to join me for this. I was really intrigued by this land court case, and I know that you're exactly the person that I need to talk to you about it, so I appreciate it. Thank you. 
Oh, happy to be part of this. Thanks, Snowden. Oh, you're certainly welcome. So before we get started, why don't I hear in your voice your area of practice? Because I know you do have a specialty in cannabis. Am I right about that? Yes, yes. I'm a partner at the Boston Law Firm of Davis Mom. And our firm has a, it really has been involved in uh, cannabis-related activities since the medical phase of Massachusetts started uh, nearly a decade ago. And then as it jumped towards adult use legalization, which happened in a 2016 ballot initiative and then follow-up uh, statutory development, we uh, got involved. We built a practice group of people with different expertises. We have people who do land use, tax, business investment type, and um, corporate structure issues. And I focus in on the regulatory side for the most part. And I'm one of the co-chairs of the firm's cannabis practice group working with the State Cannabis Control Commission, getting people licensed. It's a very elaborate licensing process in Massachusetts, so I've been the one who helps manage the process of getting people uh, into the uh, Cannabis Control Commission licensing process and helping them through it. Right, and it's been a year since the adult use law was passed. How's it going? Um, it depends on whose perspective you're you're talking about. From this perspective of, it's been a, a I would say a mixed bag. I think the the state regulators are trying hard, but they really adopted a difficult licensing scheme. Uh, they modeled it in spirit on the kind of the gambling industry. They want to make sure that people who are in this industry know exactly what they're doing that they have policies developed before they jump in with both feet, that there's as many assurances as they can get that people will not divert product to people under the age of 21, that they will maintain product quality, all that type of stuff. So it's a pretty elaborate process. The early winners really are the medical, existing medical licensees. They got a jump start through the licensing process. And so many of those are already in business and making sales. It's been a longer haul for the, um, you know, for the more in, for the independent startups who want to get a either a retail shop going or a cultivation operation of various sizes or an edibles manufacturing entity group up. So the first uh, store retail stores uh, got licensed in I think November of last year, right around Thanksgiving time, and then they've been progressively increasing in the number of ones that are getting the final operating licenses allowing them to sell. So I think we're now up to 20 retail stores. I think there's probably uh, you know 13 or 14 cultivators that are uh, growing for adult use. There's 13 or 14 edibles manufacturers in place. So it's it started very slow, but now it's up to you know, 30 or 40 million bucks a month in gross sales. And so people are starting to get happy that it's fulfilling, at least starting to fulfill the promise of the industry that people had hoped to see. And when it comes to the licensing, how difficult is it there for people to qualify for a license? Um, it's not theoretically, but it's just getting the whole package together. It takes time and effort. It's, it's certainly any large provider is going to put resources into getting it all right and getting it thorough and being able to pass muster, it's a little bit more of a challenge for the smaller providers, but they're doing it. And is there a limit as to how many licenses are issued? There's no license number limits at the state level. It's just that it has a multiple set of licenses to apply for. You need one license that's kind of like the application that says who you are and who your principles are and what your financial commitment is going to be. They will then vet. And then everyone involved in the group has to pass a background check. And then you have another application that's all your policies. And typically, depending on license type, it's somewhere between 15 to 20 policies you have to have in hand that are detailed summaries of what to do. And, and then you just have this a separate one to pay you know, various fees. If you qualify and meet the standards, which is essentially you show that you can substantially comply with the with the 75 pages of regulations that are in place, you'll get a license. Well, that's good because there are some states that have like a limitation on how many licenses. And so it's hugely competitive in those states to just try to secure a license. And it can be quite expensive, too. 
but it's good to know that they don't really have a limit. So the issue is not the limit at the state level. It's the issue of limits at the local level where it gets it can get potentially challenging for a particular operator. Right. And that kind of leads me to this question about the land use court. And I know some uh, municipalities around the country are really fighting having cannabis businesses within their city limits. So tell me just an overview of what happened with that, because I know it was a huge win for the industry. Mm-hmm. No, that's fine. I have a, I'd like to step back a little bit on that to put the decision in context which is, as I noted earlier, there's a, there was a state ballot initiative that was uh, designed to figure out if there was public support for legalization of adult use, and it passed. And uh, then the legislature went ahead and codified a law that filled in some of the details, modified some of the terms of the ballot initiative, and was ready to charge forward. And one of the issues of that was, what is the ability of municipalities to say no to adult use? And under the state's medical licensing scheme, they could not say no. They could only potentially have zoning limitations of having a marijuana district. At the adult use level, they decided to come up with a different scheme for that. They said that towns could say yes or say no to cannabis, but they had to do it in particular ways. The big one being that if you were a town who said no to cannabis at the ballot initiative level, in other words, you didn't have a majority of supporters in your town, then the city council or the town uh, board of selectmen or the town meeting or whatever the government form could have a vote to say no to cannabis, and that's it for adult use cannabis in your town. If you were a town, we had a majority yes vote for cannabis. It isn't that easy. You'd have to go ahead and have an actual popular vote somehow not very well defined, but you had to ha- they had to be able to have a you had to you had to put it to the town voters and the town voters would have to um, you know I guess approve the decision not to have cannabis in the town. That's the way they teed it up. So if you're a majority no town, then the town could handle it in its own way. If you're a majority yes town, then the town couldn't just do that. They had to put it to the voters. And then the question for the case you were talking about, which was the town of Charlton, is what is the standard for approving a no vote to cannabis? And in that case, um, the question really came down to, is it something that you could, um, you know, would you have to do it through the bylaw process, um, which is a, you know, a municipal vehicle for regulating Built um, activities in the town. And the thing is that the general principle of bylaw law is that you need a two third vote to do anything. So the question is whether they would have to, you know, vote to prohibit cannabis by t- a two thirds town vote, or would it be a simple majority that you could do under a general bylaw? And so that really teed up the case. In that case, it was a town that had actually did put, put an adult use ordinance in place. And went down the, the bylaw road and they passed that general ordinance by the two-third vote. And then the question then became, you know, they then had somebody put a general bylaw in place to prohibit uh, cannabis in town and they passed that. But that was the way that the proposal was going to be that you would have to, by simple majority of the, you would be able to pass a general bylaw that would prohibit cannabis in the town of Charleston. And that's where a particular operator who had a very large business, medical business in that town and wanted to get in the adult use business, ended up um, filing suit in uh, land court to be able to say, no, you can't do it. You have to do it. You can only set up that vote so it's a two third or nothing on that. And that was the, that was the state of play with the case. And, and back in March, the land court did come out with a decision that said, if the town starts Going down the bylaw process for cannabis, you have to stick with the bylaw process for trying to ban cannabis. And in that case, it went to the town meeting and they actually, they didn't even get a, a majority vote in that ultimately, but they at least established the precedent for some towns that if you start with a, a cannabis bylaw in place, the town can't go ahead and then shift gears and say, we're going to just do a 50% vote uh, to ban 
uh, that you had to do the two-third vote to, to ban, and which is obviously a much harder standard than a majority vote. So in Massachusetts, do the proceeds from sales of adult use go at a state level to education or anything like that? Is, where do the excess funds go for the program? Sure. Uh, the excess funds, there's a, there's a couple different funding sources that are set up under the law that enacted the, or that implemented the 2016 ballot. One piece of it is that there's a piece of it is tax revenue that'll end up going to the state. I don't remember off the top of my head if it goes to the general fund or if it's earmarked, but there's definitely a chunk that goes to the state. And then another chunk is um, something that, that a town or city could pass a by local ordinance or by local rule opting into a separate tax that would go directly to the municipality and then beyond that is the issue of that there's an every operator i mentioned earlier that there are municipal issues one of the big ones is that every operator has to negotiate a host community agreement with the municipality and it's kind of the document that's going to govern the relationship between the operator and the city or town. And in that case, the host community agreement almost always involves a fee that's based on a percentage of gross revenues. And that's where that that money, again, would go directly to the town or city, and they would use it either based on their general law or they would do it based on you know, whatever commitments are agreed to in a host community agreement. So that's where the money would go. So part of it would be the taxes to the state. Part of it would be the optional tax at the local level. And then there's the issue of the local fees through the host community agreement. Right. Well, the reason that I was asking is because if there's a portion of the revenues that go toward a general state fund, if a municipality opts out and let's say the state fund was dog-eared for something like education, sort of the way it is in Colorado, if a town opts out, then would they be able to draw from those state funds down the road? Or would they be excluded from that because they excluded the businesses from their municipality? Yeah, I don't know that that's set yet. I think that's something that's being discussed. I think, again, the you know the legislative session in Massachusetts is a two-year cycle. And so the legislation this year is going to be looking closely at the initial experience of the first nine months of legalized cannabis. And that's why I think one of the issues they're thinking about is, you know, is there something that if a town opts out of the process entirely, you know, should they be limited in terms of having access to the cannabis-related tax revenues that's there? And it's also a little bit tricky because there is a separate issue that towns can prohibit. They also, in certain cases, can limit you know, the ability of licensees to operate in their town. So I guess you may have a rule saying that people who prohibit out and out can't share, but what about the people who say only authorize two or three licenses in the given town? Does that mean that they, as opposed to, you know, the capacity in the town to have five or six or seven licenses, should you proportionately limit that? And would that be difficult to calculate? So I think there's a few things that the state senators in the state house folk will have to figure out. I should know, by the way, that one of the counsel we have at our firm is the guy named Dave Rogers, who is a member of the house. He's actually the chair of the newly formed cannabis committee that will be proposing legislation for general purposes. And so I'm sure that's going to be something that Dave and his Senate co-chair and the committee members will have to do some serious thinking about um, in the upcoming legislative session. That's interesting that your firm's going to be involved in that process. Do you have outreach programs for the public to make commentary? That's a good question on that. I mean, at the legislative level, it will be subject to the ordinary hearing process. When you know the legislation is put forward, committees are there, they'll take testimony from individuals and groups, and there'll be a public entry point in that. And I know that the members of the legislature are meeting actively with the commissioners at the Cannabis Control Commission and other people who are involved in the industry to be able to make sure they get a full sense of what's going on before they actually formulate legislation to refine what's happening in the regulatory scheme at the statutory level. Or, you know, turning from the legislative into the regulatory piece, the uh, Cannabis Control Commission has been a pretty outward-facing agency since it started up. 
Uh, it has uh, it's very been very interested in public input when it drafted the initial regulations. It put them out in draft form. It solicited comments from the multitudes, both in written form and in uh, public hearing processes. Our firm putting comments on some technical issues in the initial rules. They ended up you know, coming out with the rules. And since then, they also, they also have a couple of different um, subcommittees with industry experts that feed information into them that they use for policymaking. And now the commission is teeing up some regulatory changes that'll be actually kicked off uh, later this week. Wow. Then, um, so when you say they're kicking off this week, is it committee meetings or how does that work? It's going to be proposed rules. And they, they came up with a report about a month ago that said that they wanted to do a few things. Part of it, I guess, ties back to their draft rules back in the back in December of, the, of 2017. Their initial set of rules had a couple. The, the, the rules themselves now have a whole variety of license types. You can be a retailer, you can be a cultivator, you can be a manufacturer, you can do a, be a craft cannabis provider, so you can have your own high-end particular form of cultivation, and there's special rules that would apply to that. They have micro-businesses, which are for smaller businesses that might potentially have a few, some lower fees and easier entry, although there's a separate issue whether that's really that effective. But the thing that they had in the initial rules were that they wanted to come up with the idea of how to do delivery only. In other words, you'd be a licensee who wouldn't have a storefront, could you just deliver cannabis? That's one concept. And the other one was for cannabis cafes or what they call kind of social use or social consumption, that you can actually have a cannabis place where people can consume cannabis on site. It can either be a predominantly cannabis only cafe they held open the option of even having it co-located with other uses, like you have a yoga studio that would have a cannabis license or a gaming place that would have, a can have the ability to serve cannabis to the gamers in there. And I think they thought that was a bit of a bridge too far in the initial rules that came out a year ago. And now they are tentatively moving forward, it looks like in these rules to start the process certainly for social use. And I think delivery is also supposed to be part of the picture. And what so we'd like to see later this week are actual rules um, of setting the stage for these new license types. Um, the social consumption piece is likely to start with a pilot program that they want to pick, say, 12 towns or cities that would have some limited ability to grant social use licenses under certain circumstances. So we're really looking to see the specifics of what they're going to go as they venture into this brave new world that runs into a whole bunch of issues, especially concerns over intoxicated patrons who would be driving home potentially and causing public um, health and safety issues. So that's really coming that we really need to see exactly what they're going to propose. It should be interesting, but it's been a, an issue that has been really focused on by the, by the commission. They really want to make it happen. One thing I'll say before I stop and you can ask questions on it is that um, it's one of the other parts of the, the Cannabis Commission's DNA is that they really want to try to um, help communities who've been disadvantaged by the marijuana trade in the marijuana enforcement policy of the past. I know that's a particular interest of yours. I've heard some of your past podcasts on that. It's something that I know has is, is, is been tried in different places. Massachusetts has at least theoretically a, 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 a set of policies to foster um, you know, community growth and beneficiaries of um, the cannabis revenues into these towns and communities of, that have been adversely affected by the cannabis trade. And anyway, what they're trying to do with this new licensing types is that they're likely to limit the licensees for a period of time, such as two years, to those who've been adversely affected um, by um, the cannabis policies of the past, but, or also people who have who are minorities or veterans or other disadvantaged groups. So they're likely to have it so that you have to have a majority of disadvantaged persons will be the ones who will be the licensed applicants for these new license types. 
That is actually very good to hear because there are some states that prohibit licenses going to anyone who's been convicted of a felony, you know, which is really a shame because so many of the people who are probably the most knowledgeable about the plant are people who were convicted of uh, possession of it early on. (laughs) And then they're not able to actually contribute to or benefit from the industry. So I'm really happy to hear that. And is Massachusetts also going to be exonerating people who have been convicted of cannabis crimes? I'm not sure. I, I don't know that I've heard that that piece of it is going to be in play. I may have just missed it because it's the issue of the criminal justice implications of the change in marijuana policy is not something I've, I've focused on. So I, it could happen, but I don't believe I've heard that in the state to date. And maybe, again, that might be something that will be looked at in the upcoming legislative session. But yeah, they've been, they've, there's, a, there's a several people on the commission, including uh, the chair, uh, Stephen Hoffman, who seems very committed to the issue of having understanding the social justice implications of uh, cannabis licensure in businesses. And there's also Commissioner Title, who is another one who is very, very committed to this and is, um, is very focused in on trying to make sure that, um, that not all the license benefits at the company level go to say the big corporations who own the big medical manufacturing facilities in the state. They want broader benefits to be distributed across the state. And especially in the towns like parts of Boston and parts of some of the cities, the smaller cities and um, all across the state who've had high levels of um, cannabis arrests in the past. And also, I think that by inviting the disenfranchised communities to participate in the cannabis program in the state, they're also eliminating the potential for the criminal element, the black market trade of cannabis to be prevalent in those communities as well. I would think that's a, that would be a very smart move. I think that's exactly right, Snowden. It's something that um, is part of the picture here. They really want to make it so that the, it'll be a self-sustaining, growing industry that benefits a whole spectrum of um, individuals in the state. And I'm glad that they're taking that. The issue is that it's hard to do. For example, there was a special licensing benefit called an economic empowerment applicant who would be able to, if you apply, you'd have to have a majority disadvantaged person, persons in your group your license group. And if you apply, then you would be able to have preferential processing speed. You also have some fees waived and that type of thing. And I I think my understanding is that few, if any, of those economic empowerment applicants have made it through the process yet. I think it's just hard to um, to be able to have that type of business that requires I don't know, it just requires a lot as a startup business in a new industry, and they haven't been able to get people across the finish line yet. But I think they're still trying hard to make that happen, at least in expanding and working in different directions. They're also having special training programs for people who are disadvantaged so that you, if you qualify, then you get access to employment training and skills training and other benefits. That'll be, um, you know, they'll just in, again, certain fee waivers in order to really encourage people to get in the business. You read my mind with these because I was going to say, you know, it's one thing to qualify for the license, but when it comes to actually starting up a business, the disenfranchised communities are going to be the least likely to have the funding to go ahead and implement a business that they qualify for. So that's interesting that they would have some considerations in terms of fee reduction and that sort of thing. But are there also groups out there who are specifically looking to invest in those underserved communities? In other words, help some of these potential business owners get a leg up? Because that's a challenge, I would think. It's expensive to start these businesses. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. I think the answer is yes. A lot of the businesses are being cited in these different cities and towns that qualify as disproportionate impact communities. And so that's part of it is that they will, you know, they're there and they can hire local talent. 
But the other part is that one of the policies that you have to have as part of the licensing scheme is uh, you have to have a plan for how you're going to benefit areas of disproportionate impact. So I think many providers, when they will commit to giving a plus to people who live in these towns when they're making hiring decisions. Yeah, well, that's very good to hear. And then, you know, also of the people in those communities that actually want to start the business, getting the funding, you know, I'm wondering if there were any state programs to help them achieve the funding that they need to start these businesses. Yeah, I guess, depending on your perspective, um, sadly or otherwise, um, that was one of the proposals that was floated earlier this year at the legislative level, should there be like a loan bank that would be used to give subsidized or otherwise uh, competitive rates to the startup businesses involving these disproportionate impact uh, folk. And uh, that measure did not succeed. So it was a very forward-looking piece of legislation that would accomplish exactly what you're looking for. So that direct benefit, sadly, did not make it. Uh, but yeah, I think that's what's happening is the you know the market to some extent will help take care of it. Uh, I do think that there are there are at least some investments involving people from these communities. You know they'll they'll take on some co-investors who can help them jumpstart their ability to get into the business. And I think that's actually happening. I think a lot of if we look at the the individual license applicants. I think there are definitely some diversity in the pool of applicants, although, frankly, it's still not great. I mean, I think the statistics that the uh, Cannabis Control Commission put out as of, say, mid-June was, I think, 13% of the folks involved in the industry are some type of disadvantaged, whether it's women or minority or veterans or disabled or LGBT, which is another disadvantaged category as the state looks at it, but that still leaves 80 plus percent uh, to folks who don't meet those categories, or at least not reporting that they meet those categories. So I think that's something that the Cannabis Control Commission and probably the industry as a whole is looking to do better on. Well, I think that all aspects of business could do better on that. <laughs> it's not not even just the cannabis industry, but it's a problem across the board. But Something else you mentioned, too, which I'd love to delve into a bit, a lot of the state programs are very restrictive in terms of, you know, where people can consume. And when you're talking about the cannabis consumption cafes, if you will, how will they handle transportation <laughs> to and from these cafes, because obviously people are going to be driving to these cafes. How are they going to police the intoxication, the driving intoxication factor? And I mean, and if they're going to be putting some rules in place regarding that, cannabis actually stays in your system for three days. So a blood test wouldn't tell whether you're intoxicated or not. Have they addressed that at the commission? Yeah, I think the answer is yes. I know that one of the big issues for them is they're worried about how many servings to be allowed at these cafes. I think the thought is that they want to limit it to a single serving, so at least you won't have the over-serving issue uh, for most people as you leave. Uh, again, that's something we'll have to see how the, the specific rules come out and are they going to give more leeway on that in certain circumstances. But I think that's certainly one piece is the single-serving idea on it. And the other one would just be they need to really encourage people to take cabs and Ubers and not drive back and forth. Otherwise, they're going to end up having um, the types of issues that'll cause, put disfavor on the entire effort. So I think that's why they want to pilot it. They want to make sure that they can keep a close eye on the effort and um, make sure that uh, the that the people involved are responsible, that the people who are consuming are responsible. I think that's, we'll have to see what other specific measures they have in place, but right now I know that that's a big focus is watching out for how much you can consume on site. I've always thought it would be interesting for, for companies that are starting these cafes 
um, cannabis cafes, it would be very interesting for them to offer incentives for people to take public transportation or Uber. Like, for instance, you know, show a receipt at the door or show your phone that you took an Uber to your cafe and you get a discount when you enter. <laughs> Something like that that would encourage the public to avoid driving because, you know, the biggest nightmare for the cannabis industry would be one fatal car crash because someone was out consuming cannabis in a public setting. And, you know, suddenly it'll just dampen the, this enthusiasm for passing adult use laws in other states. So that'll be a very interesting challenge, I'm sure. I agree with you on that one, Snowden. That's exactly right. I think that's one of the reasons the state is taking its time, that it was part of the initial rules and they held back. And now they look like they're going to move forward, but only on a pilot basis for exactly that reason. They want to make sure that they don't want to have bad incidents that put the whole cannabis legalization effort in disfavor. I think they're being very careful. Some may say they're being even overly cautious, but I think ultimately they're putting they're, they're putting the same weight on the scale as you are that they'd rather take their time, get it right, make sure that uh, see how it works in practice, and then if they need to get more expansive. And I bet that they will. I think a lot of the restrictive measures that are in place. Um, once everyone lives with this for a year or two, they're likely to start looking to see where they can be a little more flexible and have a, give a little more credit to people. But right now, they're they're trying to fight the fear of the unknown, and they're trying to make sure that everything is as defensible as it can be, so they don't get undue criticism by the opponents of cannabis. And there are plenty of opponents to cannabis. We're having issues with our state here. And, you know, ever since the medical law passed back in 2012, I believe, it, it, there have been groups that have been trying desperately to undermine it, including arresting and incarcerating patients because, you know, they're, they're carrying something they purchased at a dispensary that didn't actually comport with the criminal definition of cannabis under the criminal code. <laughs> And we just had a big win recently in the Arizona Supreme Court. I don't know if you saw that episode or not, but it was a pretty significant win for the industry because for a period of about six months, an appellate court rule actually made it illegal for patients to carry tinctures. It had to be dried flour that you smoke only. So imagine giving that to a five-year-old who has epilepsy, you know. Mm -hmm. The laws have just been so ridiculous, but it's because there's such an enormous lobby here against cannabis. And part of it is the pharmaceutical lobby that is incentivizing elected officials <laughs> to go against the program. So it's been an issue. But Massachusetts really had an advantage of being sort of a late adopter compared to Washington and Colorado because a lot of the lessons that have been learned in those states that were among the first to legalize adult use cannabis, they were able to iron out a lot of the kinks. And so it seems from what I've read about, you know, all of the experiences of the people who are passing adult use laws now, they've actually been able to write in some of the laws that had to be readdressed later on after the ballot measures were passed. So, I mean, do you think that's the case in Massachusetts? Absolutely. I mean, it, we, we were watching in, in both in participating in the initial rulemaking process that the commission undertook. And one of the big things that they would do is they would uh, delegate out sections. They would make sure that whoever's drafting a section would look at all of the rules that were in place in the different jurisdictions and they'd have spirited debate over which policies to adopt and which ones to change. And they really saw it as their mission to make sure that they got the best out of the different schemes that were in place, learn the lessons of experience, be able to try to avoid problems that came out. I mean, one of them, for example, is the issue of overproduction. They're very concerned about overproduction. And so that's part of the Massachusetts culture is you only can do, you have a maximum acreage amount per company. Even if you have multiple sites, you can't go above a certain acreage of canopy. 
in your cultivation. And on top of it, if you, they, they broke it into tiers. So like a 5,000 and below is a tier one and 10,000 is tier two and it goes up from there. But if you say do a tier three or a tier four business, which is you know, 20,000, 30,000 square foot of canopy, if you wanted to get bigger and go up to tier four or tier five, you'd have to show that you fully occupy your existing allocation before they'll let you go up. They don't want people to speculatively go up a lot and then grow to that and end up not being able to sell the product legally, which would then leak into the black market or somehow get transported across state lines. So they are gonna look very carefully about what you produce and make sure that you are able to have a use for the cannabis that you produce and not be in a situation where you're an overproducer who is going to have product that's going to be used for dangerous ends. That's that's one of them specifically that they took and that have been experienced in other states before that. And now, interestingly enough, I think that a lot of states are, and, and Canada as well, are experiencing shortages. <laughs> like there just aren't enough growers to meet the demand, which I find really interesting because there was that fear that oversaturation would either drive the prices down that it would to the point where it would make it cost prohibitive to be in the industry. And that would just be the one consideration. And then on the other hand, you've got the overproduction. What do you do with the excess, like you said? So it's an interesting dichotomy there, isn't it? It is. And the thing is that that's another piece that Massachusetts folk tried to deal with is the issue of what do you do with your existing medical patients who've been benefiting from medical, medical cannabis in the state for close to 10 years at this point, and the, the, they were one of the big vocal proponents at the adult use reg hearings to say, please don't, we don't want to get into a situation where the newly licensed adult providers who are medical providers will just take all their medical cannabis, dump it on the adult use side, and we'll be, won't be able to access it very easily. It's something that the state required. If they're joint use providers, medical and adult use, they have to leave a certain percentage of their product to medical uses only. And that's something that a lot of us have been very curious about how that's going to work in practice. Because uh, is it going to be something where they'll be leaving stuff for medical use that won't be getting used and there'll be shortages on the adult use side? You know, that's again, we're still in the early days of this market and they may have to be revisiting some of these policies exactly your way. Is it going to be overproduction? Will it be underproduction? And will there be an adverse impact on medical patients or will they be fine under the current regime? And I think that's really where the commission is watching and trying to see if it has to do any course correction along the way. But they're at least thinking about these issues. They've seen them in other states. A lot of the people who show up in, at these types of proceedings at the state level at the commission are aware of these issues because they've lived through the experiences in other states as well. So I think it's, again, Massachusetts as a relatively late adopter has at least some benefit that it's trying to apply in the way it's managing its scheme. Well, I think that one state that they could look to for instruction on this would be California. When they passed their adult use law, it actually adversely affected the medical programs there and made it more expensive for patients to access what they needed. And there were new rules in place as well that increased the requirements for testing to the point where you know, even people who tested their product in labs regularly were forced to test at every phase as opposed to testing the end products. And it really started driving up the prices and, and the people who were impacted the most were the patients. And it started to make it unaffordable for the smaller businesses to really compete in the market because the costs were as high as if they were a large producer. So those are interesting challenges. And I think that just about every state has to grapple with what happens to the medical programs when you introduce the adult use programs and, and will producers be incentivized to produce medicine as opposed to just producing recreational marijuana. So it's, yeah, that's a very interesting challenge you mentioned there. So I'm wondering, is there anything else that 
you think would be important for our listeners to know about what's happening in Massachusetts or what you're working on currently? I think there's a couple different ones. One is I want to circle back to where we started. A lot of the talk was at the municipal level. Uh, it is something that a bunch of towns and cities have said no to cannabis flat out. I think the number is well over 100 out of, say, 300-something towns have said nothing. They've, they've completely prohibited it and full stop, and that's the way it goes. And so a lot of the state, including some significant cities and towns, have said no. And the other part is that even with respect to the ones that are in the game still, a lot of them have limited license categories and license amounts so that you have a town that they, there's, a limit, there's a minimum that they can do. They can't go below, I think it's 20% of the number of liquor licenses in the town. So if you legalize and you have 10 liquor licenses, you have to allow at least two, two retail stores in the, in the city or town. But that still means that there's a bunch of them where you've gotten into the situation of, okay, we're only going to have three retail licenses in the town. And then if he turns into the situation you mentioned at the outset of people competing for a limited number of license, and if they spend money on the process, and there's a couple towns that have had that, they've essentially had beauty contest programs to say who's going to be the one picked for this town, and the towns don't have criteria. So from a provider standpoint, it's a very hard thing to do. You probably have to have your local town municipal legal expert to go in there and fight your battles inside city or town hall. Um, so that's happening. And then the other part is just generally speaking is that there's only, you know, the, the process costs are expensive. It's the licensing we've talked about is a big process that costs a lot of money. Um, and the other part is that at the local municipal level, some of the towns have been very, and cities have been very difficult to deal with on the host community agreement side. There is a cap on how much they can charge for their fee uh, for the host community agreement, but uh, that's been honored in the breach at a bunch of towns. They've been using things to get away from that. For, for example, saying that they want a $25,000 application fee or voluntary contributions to charities or They'll flat out just charge a, a percentage that's above the maximum that's set in state law. And so that's, there's been a lot of public comment, both at the commission level and in the disadvantaged communities that are interested in cannabis to say, wait a second, you're just driving us out of the business because the big companies can play and pay the extra fees, but it just is another cost barrier that limits entry into the market by people who aren't. Um, you know, large companies or multi-location, you know, multi-million dollar players in the market. And so all these different factors are coming together and we're seeing these things in real time. And that's, as I noted, the legislature is looking at some of these issues. For example, um, right now, in terms of if your agreement for host community is excessive, apparently under state law, uh, the the commission, the Campus Commission said that they don't believe that they have statutory authority to deny a license based on a non-compliant host community agreement. They can look at it, they can, you know, they actually don't even ask for it during the process because they don't think they can do anything about it. That's something that there's a, a vocal majority, a vocal set of players at the House and Senate levels who said, no, we gave you authority to do that. So I think we're likely to see clarifying legislation coming out of this upcoming session to say, no, we really mean this is the percentage cap and it means no ifs, ands, or buts, and you can't get around it through sneaky fees and that type of thing. And if you try to do that, we're going to expressly authorize the Cannabis Control Commission to deny the application, send you back to the municipality, and you know, work out a deal that actually complies with the clear limits that we set. That's something that right now the marketplace isn't working on that because you can't even apply to the Cannabis Control Commission without an, a host community agreement. And if the town says, we want you to sign this agreement that's not that reasonable, at least from the provider standpoint, there's no real recourse about it. They would just say, go to another town. So that's a big issue that is in terms of the barriers to the marketplace, barriers to the 
um, disadvantaged communities that are trying to get in the business. That's a flashpoint that uh, the commission is looking for guidance and help out of the legislature so that they can be able to kind of enforce the rules of the road on that. In fact, one commissioner abstains from granting any, from a license vote for anyone where she thinks that the host community agreement, as far as she can determine, doesn't meet the applicable standards. But still, the license process is going forward and just waiting for legislative clarification. That's really quite interesting. And it will be very telling to see what happens in the legislative session. Is there a public hearing that will be in advance? I think, I don't know. I mean, typically in the, in the, from a legislative standpoint, when they actually come out with proposals, um, then at that point, there's always public hearings scheduled where people have their opportunity to speak and weigh in and no doubt people will. I also am assuming that people know who the committee members are who are thinking about these things or people know their local uh, House member or Senate member and you know, to the extent that they can do so under lobbying laws, we'll talk to them and communicate with them about their priorities. So I assume as the big legislation comes, you know, there'll be public hearing process. Back at the commission level, again, we're going to likely see some of the next round of either the new regulations dealing with the social consumption or the delivery service licensing or and amplify certain provisions in the rules. And in that case, yes, they will circulate their proposed rules. They will take written comments, they will do public hearings across the state so that they get the benefit of input before the Cannabis Control Commission moves forward. And the municipalities that opt for a no, they won't allow the adult use dispensaries in their municipality. Does this affect the medical dispensaries as well? Um, it's, no, it shouldn't. The original rule for the medical was that the Towns could not say no. They could only enact ordinary zoning requirement things. Like they could create a marijuana district right now. So it should not be affecting the existing medical providers. They essentially have their site. They have a law that says they can't be prohibited. The only issue for them was the question of, you know, many of them as medical licensees wanted to add adult use licensing to their um, toolkit. And um, that's an open issue of exactly how broad that is. There's certainly an argument that would say that, that an existing medical provider, as of the date of the legislation in 2017, would be grandfathered for adult use, but it's not a crystal clear statutory argument. So I think there's a little uncertainty about that, but that's something that we'll have to see play out fully as the medical folk trying to work against or with the municipalities who are trying to ban their expansion. Yeah, and you raise a really interesting point, too, because if there's a grower who has the opportunity to expand to supply to the adult use market who happens to be in one of those municipalities, are they going to be prohibited from sending their cannabis to to manufacturers who are making product for the retail level for adult use in other cities? That's that's a real live issue, and it is being addressed in 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 uh, across the state now. Or think about it this way: you have the situation of somebody who has who was a medical licensee who had one cultivation specific facility that was feeding retail locations into other places. And let's assume that cultivation facility medical uh, is located in a prohibited area. Are they gonna be able to take their medical cannabis and repurpose it and then be able to transfer it to the retail outlets who are properly licensed for adult use in those other towns? That's one that again is a, I don't think there's clear law on that yet. But I think that's one of those types of things that we're really seeing the limits of the, you know, the state licensing scheme versus municipalities. I know that in one of the towns that was trying to shut the provider down who wanted to use a cultivation facility to serve other licensed uh, retail outlets, that was one of the towns that had the same bylaw issue as Charlton, the one we talked about before, where they started down the road of bylaws, and then there was a general bylaw that banned cannabis 
including cultivation. And in that case, bylaws have to be reviewed by the attorney general. The attorney general actually stepped in and invalidated the general bylaw that was there under the theory that was espoused the Charlton decision that a general bylaw wasn't sufficient. So I think in that case, they may have just dodged the issue, but they were able to be able to move forward and seek their adult use license in that town. That's fascinating. And wow, when they do get all of these things ironed out, it will be instructive for other states that are embarking on adult use legislation or ballot measures. Oh, it, there's so much to consider and so many things that were left out of all of the early adult use laws. So I thank you for raising some of these issues. And I think that people would be really well served to start looking into this if they are involved in that process of creating new ballot measures. So, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, Snowden. I do think there's challenges here. And Massachusetts is going to be an interesting use case for the industry generally because it's a very regulatory state and they weighted the balance very heavily on this side of making sure that, that people are going to have, you know, just hugely detailed work to be able to make sure that they have policy summaries to be able to move forward. The hard part of that is I'm thinking of like small, you know, small manufacturers or small cultivators. That small manufacturer can only use 2,000 pounds of cannabis or the equivalent in extract to make their products. That's all they can use in order to qualify. So they're a small business or relatively small business. They have to go through the licensing process. They have to you know, pay the money to be able to hire our firm or other firms to work with them to develop, you know, 20 policies covering all sorts of things. They have to have a security plan that uh, means that they have video cameras all over their little commercial kitchen and in the storage room area so that they can make sure prophylactically that nothing is diverted, but it still means that they're going to have to spend umpty-ump dollars on us umpty-ump dollars on a security firm that's going to spend all this, get the cameras in place and the alarm systems in place. It's, there's not a small company exception. So they, I think that's been a bit of a burden for the smaller providers. And that's one of the, again, the downside of the Massachusetts experience is that they just want to make sure that nothing goes wrong. But doing that has put a bit of a damper on the entry into the marketplace and probably but at least at least dampen a bit the ability of some of these new and innovative niche products to be able to come into the market. Interesting, isn't it? Wow. Well, and something else this reminded me of was something you said earlier. The fact that cannabis has been federally prohibited has actually enabled the industry to grow from sort of a grassroots level, excuse the pun, without the interference of the major pharmaceuticals that could easily swallow it up. And you're starting to see that happen in Canada, for example, because the entire country is is offering legal cannabis for adult use now. And so <laughs> I hope that in these rules, they actually do incentivize the smaller producers so that the industry doesn't become mired in that in lobbyists and people who would damage the industry by not paying attention to the organic nature of the drug cannabis <laughs> if you will so yeah I, I agree with that i mean that's something you know i again the large companies are going to have their place and they should have their place because you know, they'll have some professionalism in the production process and they might be able to get economies of scale and give good pricing and good diversity of products that'll be there. All that is great, but also it would be, it would be, it'd be really nice to see the market develop that covers a variety of producers as well of different types of different backgrounds of different everything that just makes the industry that much more vibrant and work that much better. I agree 100% that that's something that you want to be able to set market conditions up in a way that it's not dominated by a handful of providers and that you don't crowd out people who really could add just some in interesting and innovative products that would really benefit everybody. I think that would that's an exciting prospect for me. Yeah, it is. Well, the entire industry is exciting. I mean, we haven't seen anything growing this fast since the internet boom and the 
early 90s. <laughs> so I think that's it. It's also the part of it is it's hard, though, is that it is the we've talked a little bit about it, but just the idea of, you know, that because of the scheduling of um, of cannabis federally, banks are very hesitant to get into the business. So there are a couple banks in Massachusetts who are banking the industry, but not many. And a lot of them have to rely on on other types of financing, such as charged debit cards or some other kind of more niche financial service providers. And again, it, or that they have to do their banking, but it's at high fees. It would be much better if they can get a federal resolution that allows for ordinary banking purposes as opposed to right now where most banks are worried that their own regulators are going to say, hey, these stores are very cash intensive. There might be money laundering and you, um, we may hold you responsible for not policing that. So they really don't want to go through a, a, a massive audit to be able to um, defend their cannabis practice. They'd rather, rather sit it out. So it's the ones who are in charge higher fees. And again, that's another barrier to entry for the for the smaller players that they'll have to grapple with and it would be great to be able to have clarity on that so true so true yeah and i've covered this a lot too with the banking regulatory and you know, insurance is another one it's been hard to get companies to really come on board so it's exciting when you see it happening and also in the securities industry too there's so many fears around, you know, trading in the cannabis industry as well. So yeah, it's all very interesting. Wow. Well, Rob, I'm getting a signal that it is time for us to start wrapping it up. Any last thoughts? Um, I'm not sure. I think I've given you the, at least the thumbnail sketch of what's happening in Massachusetts, that it is a, you know, it's an industry that's growing and we are seeing, um, you know, the store's opening and there's more in the pipeline that'll open there. And it's getting up to uh, to start getting the numbers that, that at least they're heading the direction of the numbers that people were hoping to see when they were, when the people were making projections at the start of the industry. But it's kind of rude to hoe. I mean, the commission still has to work through all the specific issues that they have to work through. The legislature will have to work through their issues they have to work through. But it's a very exciting time, and I'm looking. For, I really enjoy helping the companies that want to get into this new and exciting space. And I have my colleagues here at Davis Mom who are doing the same. We like the the business people who help you know get help people get financed so that they can um, you know open up a retail store. And the the people who are working with the land use side to work through the municipal issues as they go. It's an exciting time, and it's something I just I like having. Um, industries grow and prosper and add new products to um, that benefit people. So it's, I'm enjoying it and I'm happy, happy to be part of that and happy to be part of your program. Well, thank you so much for that. I, I appreciate it. And I really appreciate you being on the show today. And um, this was really a, a great conversation. So I thank you. Okay. Thanks again. Happy to you want to follow up at some point. I'd be happy to do that too. I would love to. And in fact, I'd really appreciate your staying in touch with us about this. I'd really like to see what happens when the legislative session is over and, and we know what some of those new rules will be. I believe that what happens in Massachusetts will help to inform what happens around the rest of the country as these states open up their policies to allow for adult use cannabis and also you know, eventually when it's federally regulated, which I anticipate will happen within the next couple of years. So, but thank you. Okay, you're welcome, Stone. So once again, it is time to bring yet another show to a close. I would personally like to thank my guest, Rob Manelli, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that he's doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com, click podcast to find today's episode, and there you will find his bio along with information and a link to his website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Canosphere Biotech, 
and SunState Technology Group. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank our theme composer, Erica Dahl, and the team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine. And it goes without saying just how much we appreciate our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. When you think of chips relative to cannabis, microchips may not come to mind. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group here to tell you that our chips help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, Sunstate proudly serves the technology needs of the cannabis industry. You know that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis.